0: On today's Truth Factor discussion, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we're going to see what happens when an individual's selfishness interferes with the selfless unity that is supposed to be shared among the local congregation. Now, very specifically, we're going to see what happens when an individual lies to the Holy Spirit or two individuals lies to the Holy Spirit. All that is seen in Acts chapter 5. It's a very interesting and sobering chapter. Uh, It's good that you can join us today. If you have any questions or comments, I want to have Paul, if you would, to let you know how you can participate in today's study.
1: We're so glad that you're watching today. And uh, if you are watching on uh, really any of the ways you can view us, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, or you may be connecting with us in some way on Twitter, Uh, the thing that you want to search for, the thing that you want to have is Truth Factor Live. And so, for instance, uh, YouTube slash Truth Factor Live. If you will go to that YouTube page and you'll watch us uh, on this live broadcast, there's a really nice chat feature there. Uh, We know that there are other social media that has that, but the one that works just the very best is the YouTube uh, channel there. And so uh, it may also be that as one of us makes a comment during the course of our study, that you'd like to send us an email, maybe with a follow-up question for after the program is over. And you can do that by just using our name at truthfactor.com. So it would be Paul or Tom or John or Brian or Michael. Is it Mike or Michael? Mike. Mike. Uh, Any of those at truthfactor.com. If you want to send one where we'll get all of our attention, send it to questions at truthfactor.com and uh, we'll get on with our program today uh, our bible study and we hope that you will engage with us in those chat uh, methods so that
0: we can benefit from your presence today thank you paul i appreciate that we're going to have brian haynes who uh, will be leading our discussion today so brian if you would i'll turn it over to you sir Thank
2: you very much, John. This morning we're in Acts chapter 5, and Acts chapter 5 is really uh, one of those times where we need to take just a second to remind ourselves what was going on immediately before this in Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4, verses 34 through 37, it tells us about how the needs of the saints in Jerusalem were being taken care of by a collection that was taken up. This might be a little different than the collection we understand of in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Because of the circumstances given to us in Acts chapter 5, suggests maybe it's not done on the first day of the week. Uh, That's just kind of a a speculative thought there. But what we see is that saints were taking up a collection, laying at the apostles' feet. Uh, And it brings to our attention, in particular, Barnabas and his selling of property and delivering that to the saints. And that perhaps sets us up for what begins in chapter 5. The first part of chapter 5 we're going to be reading is verses 1 through 11, and I've asked Tom, if he would, to take a look at those passages and read those for us. Tom?
3: All right. Okay, so uh, from the New King James Version we read, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things.
2: Thank you very much, Tom, for reading that for us. Um, Our chat room question that's been dropped into the chat is this. What statements in this passage help us to understand that the Holy Spirit is also God? Uh, it's not something that's the main point of the text, but there's something written here or said here that helps us to understand that the Holy Spirit is God, uh, as we understand the idea of Godhead or Trinity. So I'd like you to think about that, and uh, uh, at the end of our discussion here on this portion, we'll we'll go back to that question. And I'd like to, uh, as we look at these things and see such an unusual cir- circumstance and situation, we might remark on the idea that this is the only time where there's, if you'll let me use the term, a death penalty experience in the New Testament church. So for the entirety of the New Testament, these are the only two people who, for their sin, die at the hands of, of God in this moment. Uh, The first question I'd like to think about here, I'm going to ask Mike this one. Mike, although the scripture doesn't directly say anything about why Ananias and Sapphira might have decided about the lie, what do you think? Why do you think that they decided to do this thing?
4: Well, Brian, it's obviously pure speculation. But in chapter 4, we find that Barnabas had a piece of land and sold it and brought that money and laid it at the apostles' feet indicating that the entirety of those proceeds went to the apostles' feet. It may well be that Ananias and Sapphira agreed together to lie about this simply to save face and make themselves look as good or maybe even better than Barnabas. Many, many people lie just to get a, a foot up, a, a little better ego trip on it and all, you know. It's difficult to say. The evidence is they were selfish with it. And so we'll we'll leave it at that. The uh, the speculation is probably they just wanted to look good in front of everybody else.
2: Mike, I, I agree. I think that that's probably the most likely answer. I believe that the, the reading of the text from Chapter 4 and the immediately previous mention of Barnabas probably alludes to that fact. I like, though, Mike, that you actually pointed to two different circumstances, the idea of envy, that perhaps they desired to have mm-hmm. that, the same pride uh, or the same recognition that Barnabas has, getting that nickname, the you know, son of encouragement, must have been something they envied uh, or perhaps is. But also you, you put in the idea there of the covetousness or the greed to keep back a portion of what they had as being part of the issue as well. And so, Mike, I really appreciate that. That was a really uh, uh, good point to bring out two different characteristics, two different works of the flesh that might have participated to this. Um, I'll, I'm going to go next to Paul. And as Paul, Paul, was, was there some kind of sin if they had kept some or even if they would kept all of the money back to themselves after they sold the property? Uh,
1: not, not specifically mentioned there. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of greed they could have possibly had in their heart or any of that. But Peter makes a, a really uh, good point here uh, to uh, emphasize that the problem was that they lied about it. Uh, and uh, he says there, while it this is verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, uh, was it not on your control? And so the idea there seems to be uh, that they could have just kept their land, uh, if that's what they would have determined to do, or they could have sold it and said, here, here's half of the profit that we made from this piece of land. Uh, that's what we are going to give. Uh, they might not have got the nickname like uh, Barnabas did, uh, the nickname Barnabas. Uh, they might not have got something similar to that, but uh, certainly it would have still been an act of generosity, an act of kindness if they'd have said, here's half, or here's 25%, or here's 75%. Uh, it was under their control. Uh, the, the emphasis here is that they lied about it. They, they for whatever reason, uh, they decided not to be honest uh, in their dealings.
2: Uh, Paul, that's a really important point uh, we want to consider. That uh, being a disciple of Christ doesn't make somebody take a vow of poverty, that there's no expectation that we're to give up everything we have, and that uh, there's no there's nothing in this text that suggests that in any way. And I think it's important for us to understand that there were many New Testament Christians who uh, had wealth and retained their wealth while being faithful disciples of Christ. And so there's an important lesson for us to consider. Um, John, I think I've saved for you what I consider perhaps the hardest or most difficult question. Um, Although the New Testament people sin, uh, we know that just, uh, I don't know how far into uh, the New Testament time this event is, but just chapters before, or even a book before, we, we read about Peter lying whenever he was, uh, whenever Jesus was being tried. And we know that uh, many people would lie subsequently. Why then, John is this a moment where these two people are struck down dead for their sin? We don't even see, say, Simon the sorcerer struck down later for his sin or such. And, and uh, 1 Corinthians, we read about the sins there, that this is unique. Why do you think that is, John?
0: Well, I don't have a great answer. Um, first off, we might point out that this is the only recorded in- incident of this happening. Um, who's to say that maybe it didn't happen, um, to some other people at other times at the start, but you know, we don't know that for certain. The only thing I can figure Brian would have to be one here, here, here we have apostolic authority at the very beginning of the church. The, the apostles are speaking as inspired by the Holy spirit. Everything the church is doing has been authorized by God. And therefore the people pulling their resources together to help. In a selfless way, the other Christians and so forth are all inspired or are given by the authority of God via the Holy Spirit, via the apostles, and so it may be that to emphasize the seriousness of their sin. I mean, lying is contrary to God. Lying is one of the when you look in Revelations, the the all liars shall have the part in the lake of fire and so forth. Um, it may be that at the very beginning, the lesson needed to be taught. It could be that they viewed it, uh, the Lord viewed it as a direct uh, act against the authority of the Holy Spirit and the apostles. Um, I, the, the easiest answer, I think, would be to teach a lesson. But I don't know if it is that simple, though.
3: Tom,
2: can I jump over to you for a second? Do you have anything you to add to that?
3: No, well, actually, I, I think John covered kind of my thoughts. You know, I mean, I mean, this is early on, and, and what we're seeing here is God's seriousness. That, that, you know, we might use the expression, "This isn't a game." You know, the church, the church is not, is it's not fun and games. The, uh, it's not a toy. Uh, it, uh, the church is the family of God, designed to, first and foremost, to glorify God. And secondly, to build up those who belong to God, who join themselves together, and uh, and so it, it needs to be treated with seriousness. And you find that on the on the, this occasion, and God's sending a message. That's what I see in this.
2: Uh, do you think, I think you guys hit it right on the head, actually. I, I I think that that also must be the most likely case. I actually think verse 11 figures into that when it tells us the great fear fell upon all the church and upon those who heard these things. I think it's important for us to understand that that when we consider the idea of fear, uh, that the fear of the Lord is still a necessary part of faith, and that the, it was necessary that men feared failing God, and it still is, and and so perhaps that that conclusion to the matter tells us a little bit about why it happened, which I think is exactly what you both said. And I, and I think that uh, what you say, this is one of those times where what you say must be true. We're not certain that that's the only truth that's here, but we know that what you say is true, and that verse 11 seems to reinforce that idea. Um, did anybody else have any comments uh, or thoughts on that or any part of this before we go to the chat room?
4: Just an aside, Brian, uh, and somewhat of a, a light side to it, if you will. If in today's world, by way of verse 7, had this happened in today's world, by the time the two men got back with uh, from burying Ananias, we'd have been home for about an hour and a half, and they'd had to come back to bury Sapphira. It's interesting that the church stayed assembled for that long, and nobody cared about the time.
1: <laughs>
2: That's an interesting observation, Mike. I hadn't even thought about that. Um <laughs> Uh, anybody else have anything to add to it? Uh, then if then let's go ahead and go back to our chat question. And as a reminder, that question actually was kind of an indirect thought about this. It was, what uh, what statements in this passage help us understand that the Holy Spirit is also God? And uh, I see two answers in our YouTube chat that, that both actually pick up exactly on the right point that was to be made there. Um, John, can you bring that in for us? Oh, you yes. already did. Okay, Stephen James says, we know from verse 3, uh, Peter uh, speaks to li- about lying to the Holy Spirit. Then verse 5 states, you have not lied to men, but to God. And then our next comment uh, from Gregor Hinckley says, the phrases lie to the Holy Spirit, lied to God, test the Spirit of the Lord, all point to a single incident that is received by each facet of the Trinity. So God's Trinity is demonstrated. Th- those are both excellent observations. Those, those are the ideas that I think are important to, Uh, To understand here, it's not it's not the direct point that we take from this passage, but it's very clear that to lie to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. Gregor goes on to point out the spirit of the Lord uh, points to Christ. So as Gregor points out, there's even an allusion to Jesus here, too, again, giving us that sense of a violation of all three might be mindful of what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 when it speaks about uh, how it is that when we sin willfully, we offend uh, the blood of the covenant and the the spirit and and Christ and how those things, again, are all offended by our sin. So there's an important point. Um, At this point, we're ready to move on to our next section. And uh, it's a little shorter section, but I'm going to have Mike read this one for us. Mike, can I ask you to read Acts chapter 5? Verses 12 through 16. Well, I put the chat question up there. Happy, said,
4: to, do so, Happy to do so, and uh, as always, I'm reading from the King James Version. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest there no man joined himself to them, but the people magnified them. The believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one.
2: So our chat question that I dropped in there is this, do you think that the shadow of Peter actually was healing anyone? Um, You know, that's a question, actually, I was wondering. I don't know if I know the answer to that, because there's not a direct statement that it was healing them. It just states the people were laying them out. I wonder what our chat audience thinks about that and uh, how they can see uh, the possibility of what might be happening here. There are some other instances in scriptures they might think of, too, of, of a healing that's indirect that might might apply to this as well. So, so that's your chat question to help me out, to help me understand the passage better. Um, the first thing I want to kind of delve into is an important term that's found there. And I'm going to ask Tom to, to tell us about its importance. Tom, what does the term one accord mean? And, and Tom, why is that term important?
3: Yeah, well, the, the term one accord, it has to do with the idea of agreement. So, so what you're dealing with here is unity and uh uh one of the i guess you would describe it as one of the hallmarks of true christianity and one of the hallmarks of the church uh, especially i shouldn't say especially but including the local congregation is the fact that we are to be united that uh, that is just constantly emphasized throughout scriptures i'm uh, one of the best verses that comes to my mind in dealing with that is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, where, uh, where Paul says there, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So you've got the idea of you're, you're thinking the same way, you're treating each other the way that you ought to, and so on. And that's what you have here on this occasion. And the more difficult the society, the surroundings from a hostile standpoint, the more important that unity is. That's
2: a, that's a great that's a great observation. There's going to be a, a, a theme of hostility increasing from the last chapter to this chapter to the next chapters. And and Tom, I think uh, I really appreciate that you brought that out to it. Anybody else have a thought about One Accord? It's it's important. And anybody else want to add anything? If not then let me jump over to Mike. And uh, Mike, I have a question for you. Uh, there's a there's a statement here that I've always kind of puzzled about at verse 13, when it says, none of the rest dared join him, but the people esteemed them highly. And I've always wondered about what that passage is trying to tell us. Why is it that none of the people dared to join the disciples, even though they, well, they wanted to be healed or they esteemed them highly?
4: What do you think about that passage, Mike? Oh I believe what we've studied Brian thus far through the book of Acts would would lead us to two conclusions no there's no specific verse I can turn to but by the study of these uh, four chapters previous I believe there's two conclusions we'd come to one the apostles are already in trouble by the magistrates the chief captains the the uh, the the uh, priest around the temple for preaching Christ and the resurrection Nobody wants to be in trouble with the powers that be. And so while they appreciated what the apostles were saying, they appreciated obviously the healing factors that they were bestowing, they perchance were very leery about changing from the Jewish traditions— and the law of Moses to join themselves with the apostles for fear of being called in before the magistrates and the chief priests, the scribes and all of them and put on somewhat of a trial. The other thing that seems curious to me is that uh, th- this becomes a, a, a new thing in Jerusalem. Always before the Jews had been uh, commanded by the law of Moses, they had heard of baptism through John the baptizer they, they had obviously known of the miracles of Christ and had associated with all of that. But to join themselves to the group of the apostles and to this particular uh, group of uh, soon-to-be Christians, they're not called that yet, but soon-to-be Christians in Jerusalem, um, was such a change from the old law that they were hesitant to it. The reason I say those two things is because that seems characteristic of people yet today. They don't want to get in trouble with their families. They don't want to get in trouble with their employers. They don't want to argue religion with people because they're not well-schooled in in what the scriptures say. And the second reason people sometimes don't want to obey the gospel is simply for the sake they're scared of themselves. They don't know how far they can go with it. Uh, They don't know how long they can last with it. This indicates yet the third and largest problem, as as I see the Scriptures teaching People that were following the apostles' doctrine and continuing in one accord were absolute believers in what they both saw and heard. And you remember from the fourth chapter, that's precisely what Peter and John said. We cannot speak but the things which we have seen and heard. This is still astounding to a number of people. They lack confidence in themselves to know that what they were seeing and what they were hearing is precisely from God.
2: That's a, that's a great comment, Mike. Uh, it's a really good comment. John, did you have anything to add to that?
0: Well, Brian, I do think... I do. I think that is interesting here when we stop and look at this that you almost see two contradictory statements that they're not, but it begs the question in verse 12, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's Solomon's porch, we assume that to be the Christians, those who had already obeyed the gospel. Now we do know that the Jews went to the temple three times um, a week, of course, to be able to, to go, not three times a week, three times a day to be able to pray into God. And um, when you look back at the text here, right after it says um, they were all with one accord, then you have the statement, yet none of the rest there join them, but the people seemed them highly. And verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So I just think it's interesting. It kind of makes us wonder a little bit um, who that they were and, and what, what is this division? Or maybe we're talking about um, there were still some Jews hearing the gospel and obeying the truth. But yet there was also a particular group that was unwilling to make that firm commitment
2: you know uh, what John what you're saying that's interesting to me um, is that you're describing the idea and this is an idea that that I if I if I understand what you're saying I, I would say is unique only to the new the, the New Testament first century church that you could still have righteous people, that were cautious about becoming Christians because of their devotion to God that in other words and I think is that kind of what you're saying John that you would have people that were devoted to Moses but you know they're being cautious about their uh, their conversion to Christ because of those things and I think even to some degree that was the previous uh, some of the previous thought as well and why I think that's an interesting comment is that when we move about 20 years from now with Peter, or I'm sorry, with Paul coming to Jerusalem, and he meets with the congregation of saints there in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Church of Christ, if you would. Yeah. And one of the elders there, James, is speaking, and he but says you know. there are still devout Jews that are, you know, that, that are devout to Moses that are, you know, maybe I, I'm reading into this to say still hearing about Christ that we don't want to offend yet. And, and I, I'm mindful of the idea that that's really only true of the first century, where you can have somebody that really does love God but is hesitant on becoming a Christian. I don't think that could be true today, but maybe then it could be. John, is that kind
0: of what you're saying too? Well, what you said sounds good, maybe sounds better than what what I was pointing out. I just thought it was interesting that in in two different verses, we have an an acknowledgement of a group of people who was unwilling to join them. and the very next verse, believers were continuing to join them. I mean, he's clearly talking about two different groups of people. But but you're right, though. And I guess if we we're going to make a, a practical application going along with what you say, there are going to be times we're going to try to teach people, and they will be converted, persuaded enough to obey the gospel. Then there'll be others who would kind of like to have what we have, but yet their persuasion is not yet strong enough for them to step over. Um I, I just thought that the difference there is interesting in one verse— There were many who were unwilling to do it, but the very next verse, believers continued. So even if there were those unwilling to join, the truth still was taught and believers were still added. Maybe that that would be... Brian,
4: maybe to be a little bit more blunt about it, and I agree with John 100%, but if I may just be a little bit more blunt about it, there are today people that want the benefit of God without the commitment to him. You go visit hospitals, and oftentimes I'm I'm grabbed in the hallway, and you're a preacher. Come in here and have a prayer for for this person. Very few funerals do you go to, but what that individual as wicked as they may have been, that individual gets praised by who's ever officiating at the funeral. People want the benefits of God without the commitment to God. What you're seeing here in verses fourteen and uh, thirteen and fourteen, you. People that wanted these benefits didn't want to commit themselves, and yet the gospel is still influential enough that you find multitudes, and I'd emphasize that word, both men and women obeying what the gospel tells us to do.
2: Uh, Mike, that's a really neat point, by the way. Uh, The idea that people want the benefits of Christ without the commitment um, as a side note, and I really like that, Mike. You know, it's interesting you think about that, The Bible says that we're the salt of the earth, that is believers, Mm -hmm. we're the light of the world. And from that, we might intuit that that our nation's survival, our community's prosperity, is because we're the few righteous that preserve it. So ironically, our country, our communities, our cities, they benefit from our presence, they benefit from the blessings of Christ, but they're not committed to it. And so I think there's something very real about us today in that sense too. That's a neat point, Mike. I really appreciate that. Um, Tom, or, or John I really appreciate what you had to say too I, that was just uh, uh, what you got me to thinking about John was that I wonder you know I kind of wondered of a context now between verses 12 and 13 I hadn't thought about for the sake of time I don't want to go any further in that um, and let me just uh, double check here uh, I think we're ready to go back to our chat question unless anybody else has any other thoughts and the chat question as I said before kind of was just one that I had that I wasn't Uh, entirely sure about. And uh, the question was, do you think that the shadow of Peter was actually healing anyone? And what I mean, there's two ways you can look at that question. First of all, was anybody actually being healed? And second of all, was it Peter's shadow that was actually doing the healing? Um, Was it some kind of mysticism or something like that? Stephen James uh, jumped right to an answer there, I see. I suspect that their faith is what healed them, just as we are told by Christ several times elsewhere. What's neat about Stephen's answer there is that it it kind of also suggests the characteristic of the t- of the people themselves that were being healed in that way um, I was kind of thinking too that there are some other instances in the New Testament where people were healed in a somewhat indirect way for example we remember how Jesus uh, somebody was healed by reaching out and touching his garment <laughs> acts 19 we haven't got there yet but we'll see how people are bringing it says handkerchiefs and aprons uh, from from Paul to people to be healed as well. And we might want to be careful to say this isn't, a, as I said, some kind of uh, magical spell. And, and I use that term specifically because anything that describes the idea of, a, of an ability to learn something in some unusual way or some enchanting of an item would be, fall into that category. This is, this is works of faith. This is the concept of, of faithfulness towards God that might bring about such a healing. And that's the important point. And I I think Stephen really hit on that well, and I appreciate that. Um, Gregor Hinckley also had a comment there, if we can grab his. And Gregor talking about what might be happening and not definitive. But then Gregor goes on to suggest or or to see an answer here when he says, and they were all healed, indicates is possible. And he goes on to mention the very things I had mentioned. People were healed by touching Christ's robes, Paul's cloak. Always, it was the faith of the healed that's important. Gregor, that's those are the points I was thinking of too, uh, as those other instances where items were abstractly used in order to bring about a healing. Um, and it doesn't say that they were healed by Peter's shadow, but it's not it's not outside the realm that that seems to be the case. And as you said, that all are healed seems to suggest so. So that was a great comment.
0: And Brian, we have one more comment. Is going
2: to be Acts chapter five, verses twenty six through forty two. Um, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. 17 through 25. Sorry. And, uh, I've asked, uh, <laughs> Mike, you've got a comment there in the chat.
4: Uh, yeah, I'm glad that my grandson's watching. I appreciate that is, it. <laughs> Thank you. That is
2: fantastic. Yeah. I appreciate that too. Uh, appreciate that, uh, that little call out there.
4: I appreciate um, that.
2: <laughs> I, uh, uh, Paul, I'm going to ask you if you would to read for us, uh, Acts chapter five, Verses seventeen through twenty-five. Uh, so, Paul, whenever you're ready,
1: be happy to do that, Brian. Uh, looking here in Acts uh, five, beginning at verse seventeen, or we we'll down through verse twenty-five, as you suggested. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent uh, to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, They returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the chief priest, the captains, uh, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple. Teaching the people. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, our chat question
2: is this: What other instances are disciples or apostles miraculously released from prison? I want you to think about that for a moment, um, and I kind of want to maybe bring up two some of the different uh, results of those times that that happened. You might think about how each one is a little bit different, and then the second part of that question, or the second question, is where were, were Apostles or disciples always released from prison or even miraculously released from prison. Uh, I'd like some thoughts on that if you can put some thoughts together. Um, Our first question is going to go right to Paul, it looks like. uh, And it's to think about the idea of uh, kind of a a question that speaks to something that's an important theme in the book of Acts. And uh, Paul, I hope you can read my mind. I know sometimes I ask a question and I realize it makes more sense to me than it might make to you. But let me ask it like this. Why didn't the angel that set them free, why didn't the angel go proclaim the word in the temple? Uh, and and by that question, what pattern is being established um, by an angel instructing men to preach and teach, as we see in the scriptures? Mike, uh, Paul, does that make sense to you, what I'm asking?
1: Well, uh, I had a few thoughts that came to mind. I'm not sure that they're the Great. ones you're looking for. Uh, this is the Acts of the Apostles, and the Apostles were given the mission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And so uh, maybe there, there's a point there. Uh, there's also a point there that uh, people were to rely on the preaching of the gospel. Paul talked about it, that in the book of Romans. how He said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. And so I, I thought about that a little bit. Uh, Regarding the angel, it was interesting for me to think about a little later in this book that we're going to see that uh, Cornelius needed to hear the gospel, and rather than an angel teach him, uh, he arranged for Peter uh, to go there, uh, for Peter to be sent for and for Peter to agree to go. Uh, And so the angel certainly uh, could have words that he could share, I'm I'm sure, but the pattern was that uh, the angel did not, preached that, but the angel arranged the meeting uh, so that one of the apostles, the the preacher, uh, could share the message. Uh, I don't know if that's not what you're looking for, Brian. I'd be very interested in hearing what you had to share about that.
2: Paul, that was exactly what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the passage in Romans in particular. I'm I'm really pleased you brought that passage up, uh, which speaks about the preaching of the gospel in Romans chapter 10 and the preaching of the gospel. You also brought up the passage that the commandment was that men were to go into all the world. Um, and Paul, one of the things you mentioned there, you mentioned Cornelius, where an angel went both to Peter and to, um, uh, and to Cornelius, but, but instructed them to come together to hear it. Um, there is another example, too, of Philip, where Philip, uh, we'll read in just a couple of chapters, uh, is directed by an angel to go to the Ethiopian eunuch to preach the gospel. And all of those cases are important to understand that the angel had an opportunity to preach the gospel, but does not that the gospel is preached by men. Now, while that's something we note, uh, I think that some of the significance of that point is that what are some of the gospels of men today that claim to come from angels, to have been preached by angels to men? Anybody have an answer?
1: Well, isn't that the uh, the Mormon thought, uh, the, the Mormon Church is yes.
2: is one where they claim an angel uh, brought uh, uh, brought uh, the go- a go- a gospel message, not the gospel, a gospel message. to Joseph Smith. Is there another even larger religion that claims an angel brought a message to man?
3: I, th- I think Muslim or Islam Islam uh, yes. uh, basically deals with that a little bit. So
2: I, I would just suggest to you that the pattern that's set up here in Acts. Uh, in a in a manner of speaking, refutes some of these doctrines of men where they claim angels brought them new messages from God. In the book of Acts, it's, it's rather clear that angels uh, both had the opportunity and did not do so. And as the passages you brought out there, Paul, a moment ago revealed to us, it was men that were charged to the preaching of the gospel. So that's, I think, a very significant point or uh, maybe an indirectly significant point we might consider.
1: One other passage that comes to mind, Brian, uh, on what you brought up there, John just mentioned in our chat, is John is Galatians chapter 1, where Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, and so an angel would not be permitted to reveal something different than had been preached as a matter of the truth of the gospel. You know, there's even more to add to that. That's a great passage. John, as you say,
2: John mentioned that in our chat too, uh, Galatians 1, which warns that. And the idea is that the whole gospel had been revealed to men. So there wouldn't be anything that was unrevealed that could be brought by an angel. So that really kind of doubly reinforces this warning Um, Of these things. And by the way, what's ironic is whether it's Islam or Mormonism, all of these things claim to be a new revelation or a new gospel from God, which which very much Galatians one is a is a very specific statement to that's a great comment. I appreciate that, John and Paul. Um, So so the next question I have actually comes to John. Uh, We see now the Sadducees have them arrested and and uh, imprisoned. And John, again, boy, I'm really dropping you a lot of questions that that I'm not making a lot of sense sometimes, and I think this one may or may not make sense to you. But what I was wondering was, how might it appear to the people, the Sadducees and the priests are the ones in control of the temple, uh, how might it appear to them that apostles were right back in the temple teaching uh, they get arrested, and then they're just right back there. How does that reflect on their ability to control the temple and their authority over the temple? Does that make sense, John?
0: Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, let me let me think about this for just a moment. Um, let's see.
2: That, that would be the yeah. answer if I said, be brief.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I really, you know, that's a very, I think it's a very good point because here at this point in time, you, you had come off of, you know, the crucifixion of Christ. Um, 50 days, roughly later, the Pentecost and everything happening there, there's, there's a lot of newsworthy events taking place here in Jerusalem leading up to this point, not to, not to mention in, in chapter three, the healing of the lame man, um, then warning the apostles or Peter and John in Acts chapter four, you know, not to preach in this man's name and so forth. Um, but as far as from the people looking on, um, I, I would have thought, I would think that they would see more authority and justification within what the the behavior of the apostles than in those who are trying to stifle um, what the apostles were doing um, and we, we could have the same thing today let's say if you had an oppressive government and you had a group of people who's trying to bring a, a message of freedom and the oppressive government tries to stamp that out, well, the populace around it will likely look down upon the government because they're trying to oppress a greater message. And so it may have lowered the respect of the people for the leaders of the temple, possibly.
2: I I was kind of wondering about this, John, because of verse 24, when it says, when when the chief priests and the Sadducees, the, the captain, when they hear these things, in other words, they hear that they can't even keep these guys in prison, no matter how hard they try. Yeah. The, the statement in the, in the New King James Version says, they wondered what the outcome would be and And I've always wondered maybe what that statement means, and if they're not thinking uh you know nobody's going to respect us if we can't even keep the people we arrest arrested um you know and that that strikes me as, as what you're
0: saying there too you know that is a good point i I had missed that you know we're talking about verse twenty four when they're wondering what the outcome would be. I was thinking more of on a miraculous level and everything, but you're, you're that's a good point. they could be wondering about their very leadership.
2: And, and certainly verse 26, uh, which we haven't got to yet, it, it, it infers, this is a really, I think verse 26 is, is really weird because it says that the, that the priests are actually afraid they're going to get stoned by the people. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. And I think that that really establishes this idea that, that, that they're afraid they've lost all authority in these matters. And for these guys to get arrested and then just pop up the next morning preaching again... I, you know, it really seems to me that there's something uh, pretty dramatic going on there. Yeah. Anybody else yeah. want to bring anything else up before we uh, move on? Uh, I know we've still got our largest section here, and uh, we might uh, – um, I wanted to move through that last section a little more quickly. Um, but anybody else have anything to bring up? Then well, let's go ahead know, and go to our chat room comments. Okay. And yeah. our question – uh, that we had asked earlier was, uh, what are the other instances, what other instances are disciples or apostles miraculously released from prison? And were they always released from prison? And uh, we got two answers on this, and and they're the answers I was thinking too. So Stephen James points to Peter being released by the angel in Acts 12. Paul and Silas, uh, in Acts 16, there was an earthquake which you know, if I'll count that as miraculous, uh, because I was thinking of that, too, are uh, the the jail is open. Now, what's neat about those, actually, let's go to the second. Uh, and then, of course, he points out, no, they weren't always released. And we see Paul wasn't miraculously released either. Peter, uh, Gregor points to, was released. Paul did not leave prison, kept the prisoners in jail voluntarily, which led to the conversion of the warden. Um, I was kind of thinking it's interesting to think about this, that here they're released by an angel and they immediately go back to preaching. Acts twelve, Peter's released by an angel, and he leaves the town. He goes away. Acts sixteen, they're released by an earthquake, and they don't go anywhere. So I, it's kind of neat that each time the result is completely different. And I think that uh, our, I think our our chat room people really picked up on that. And I'm glad you did. Uh, that was what I thought was the interesting thing to see. Um. So if we don't have anything else, I think let's go ahead and press on. If if everybody's in agreement on that, is there uh, that we might press on? And that means John, I'm going to give you a big chunk of reading, Acts chapter five, verses twenty-six through forty-two. Um, and although that's a lot to read, a lot of it's pretty self-evident. So John, if you would.
0: All right. All right. Chapter uh, verse twenty-six through verse forty-two. All right, so we have, then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this, in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamal, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ.
2: Thank you so much for reading that for us, John. The chat question that I want people to consider is from verse 29. And in verse 29, Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than men. What are some applications for us today in regards to that declaration? Or maybe another way of saying that, how do we look at that statement for a modern application or a commandment That we consider. Uh, So I'll leave that to the chat to think about, and we'll delve right into the text here. And the first thing I want to ask is, I want to go to Tom. I want to ask about this statement that Peter makes while he's he's speaking these things. This is something very similar. Uh, I guess we would probably all agree that this is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. This is what Peter has preached in Acts chapter 3, and in Acts chapter 4, that it seems to be the same message each time we get, to, we get to look over this about the death of Christ and what that accomplishes. Um, just something to bring up, though, is what is the significance of Peter's statement that Jesus was hung on a tree? Um, is, that, is that accurate? Is that, is, is, is that what we see in the accounts of the death of Christ? What do you think about that, Tom?
3: Well, well uh, uh, crosses were made of wood, uh, and I, I think it's just that simple. Uh, the the fact that a cross was made of wood, and and uh, that's the uh, that's kind of the point that's being driven home in all of this, is Jesus was crucified. Of course, bear in mind that you you're tying this into a context where, and we've noted this in previous chapters, and continue to note that he that uh, the events surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are constantly tied together. In this particular case, we find. Uh, uh, even more significant than just describing it as hanging on a tree. And, and I realize, like you said, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 curses everyone who is hanged on a tree uh, is indicated there. Uh, uh, what, what's even more compelling to me in that is that he says, you all murdered him. Uh, you, all are, you all were guilty of putting him in that barbaric and cruel way of dying, uh, but it didn't work has God raised him from the dead?
2: Tom, let me let me throw something at you. You said something important there that stirred in my mind something. From time to time, I've heard people make the statement that Jesus' death, because Jesus had power to have stopped it, that Jesus was himself responsible for his death. Um, and I've even heard some people describe this as a divine suicide of some sort. What, what is it about that term murder that makes that an untrue statement? What does is, what is murder
3: imply? Yeah, mur- mur- murder implies the willful intent to take the life of another, you know, or, or uh, you know, the willful intent to take life. Jesus, uh, you know, to sit there and say that Jesus was committing suicide, that's, that's, uh, that, that's just a criticism. And when, when I say that, I'm talking about it would be something said by a skeptic or somebody that wanted to. Just wanted to reject the concept of Jesus. Just, just add it to the list, uh, you know, of things. The point that Paul is making here is they were guilty. Uh, they were guilty. Jesus allowed Himself to die. That's not. That's not. That's not the same thing as, you know, you use the expression suicide by cop. Uh, uh, you know, that's. It's not anything like that. At, at all. I mean, Jesus just sat back and let the events happen that were going to happen because they needed to happen. So, so uh, it, it's it's just not accurate to say it that way.
2: Thanks, Tom. Uh that's exactly what I wanted you to do. Um this is one of those verses that it's worth it's worth underlying that word if you like to write in your Bibles only because it makes it abundantly clear that Jesus' death wasn't, as as to use that term, suicide. It wasn't some type of uh, he did it himself. This was murder. And using that word murder implies both the purpose, intent, and guilt of those that did it. And that's important. I don't think that's always understood. So I appreciate yeah. your comment.
3: Yeah, you know, in, in addition to that, don't forget verse 28. You know, when they challenged him, didn't we strictly command you to stop teaching in his name? But you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You right. know how dare you accuse us of being guilty? And and by the way, with that, I you know it's just kind of worth bringing out that. Uh, and uh, let's see if I got if I got the reference Matthew twenty three and thirty five. When they were standing before Pilate, they were freely willing to acknowledge uh, that we will take responsibility for this. You know, and, and, and Matthew twenty three thirty five is not the right verse, but 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 there was a there was a time where they said His blood be on us. This is on us. We'll take responsibility. And now all of a sudden they're denying it.
2: Yeah, very good, Tom. That's a great comment. Um, I want to jump over real quick and drop something on Mike, if if I can, Mike. Uh, I think it's uh, one of the passages I think is interesting is that uh, they in verse thirty two they say we are as witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit. So the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. How is it that the Holy Spirit is a witness of these things? What does that mean for us, Mike?
4: Well, I believe there's two, uh, two avenues of thought here, Brian. The first is that obviously the Spirit is what is uh, inspiring the apostles to speak the truth, bringing their remembrance all things that Christ had commanded them, and making sure that what they speak as witnesses remains exactly true. But the more important aspect of this is the Spirit is the third of the Godhead. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The Spirit had prophesied of this. He had, he had led men of the Old Testament to speak of it. He had, he had been involved in the life of Christ himself. Why wouldn't he wish to see the fulfillment of that prophecy? It, it, it's, it's just exactly that way.
1: I
2: like that, Mike. That's a great answer to that. Uh, I was thinking, too, of the idea of the idea of a witness in a courtroom. In a courtroom, a witness gives testimony. Now, today, no person alive, none of us have physically seen the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But
4: But, evidence to prove that that happened.
2: That's right. The apostles and Holy Spirit still testify. Their their witness... Their test witness testimony is still valid to us today mm-hmm. for that reason. And that's a neat that's just a neat idea. And I, I like to I like to think about that idea of the witness testimony of those, the Holy Spirit through and the apostles, both through the scriptures.
4: Well, and remember that the Spirit is guiding it here is after the fact. Yeah. Uh you know, Luke records this after the fact. It wasn't a daily diary here. Yeah. That's a- uh, so that the spirit had to bring the memory of the writers exactly what happened. Uh, Our finite minds can't, can't recall all the details. But when you put this all together, every detail is there precisely as was prophesied 1,500 years and more before the actual happening. So that when somebody is skeptical of Jesus dying, being buried, and being raised again, those skeptics have an awful lot of absolute provable evidence that they have to overcome to say, no, it didn't happen. Well, yes, it did. And keep in mind, as we keep telling people in our studies, there's 500 witnesses to this besides the apostles. So there's there's absolutely no way these magistrates can get out of the blood being on their hands.
2: That's, that's a fantastic comment. Uh, you're, you're you're actually taking us over to First Corinthians 15 in that comment. Uh, for the sake of time, we can't go much further on it, Mike, but boy, what, it would be great to... Uh, to be able to spend just a couple more minutes on this. Um, mm-hmm. But I need Paul to tell us something here this morning. Um, Paul, I need you to give us the full biography of Gamaliel, or at least just tell us who was Gamaliel. It sounds like he's someone we should know. Uh, what are what are some of the details uh, about him that you can tell us briefly, and, and what's the significance of the point he's making?
1: Well, from Scripture, uh, Gamaliel is mentioned twice in the New Testament. It is a a name that's used in the Old Testament, but would be a different, it would precede um, this account by quite a number of years. But uh, in the New Testament, Gamaliel here is mentioned as a teacher of the law. And then I was looking in Acts 22 and verse 3, that one of uh, Paul's uh, points of his pedigree, so to speak, uh, is that he was taught by Gamaliel. Gamaliel, apparently that was something to be uh, respected, when he talks about, he was a Jew born in Tarsus, uh, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers, uh, and so uh, here was a, a man who was known as being a strict teacher of the law. Paul, uh, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, would have been identified in that way.
2: That's that's fantastic. Uh, to draw to draw Saul's relationship with him is important. Which is very interesting in this conversation. Now, what's the significance of his point that he makes there? Is he's talking about? uh, He tells these stories of men who were uh, did uh, had led false teachings before. What is what is his point?
1: Well, uh, they had come to there. There were some who had come to nothing, uh, and really, his conclusion there is in verse thirty-eight. I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, uh, for if this plan or this work is of men. It will come to nothing, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. And so, really, he gives some some great uh, instruction here. Uh, you, you can't criticize that instruction uh, to uh, for them to say here they're teaching this thing. Uh, if if God's behind it, you're not going to be able to stop it. Uh, and if it's of men, it's it's going to doom to fail anyway. And so that that is the teaching that Gamaliel brings forth.
2: Paul, maybe as a side question, uh, to kind of drop it on you on the spot. Sure. Do they, do the leaders of the Jews listen to Gamaliel's advice very long or much at all?
1: (laughs) It does say they agreed with him, uh, but then they beat the apostles. So it it is. uh, It seemed to be like, sure, you're right, and then let's go beat them and make sure they don't do this anymore. And so uh, they verbally agree, their actions do not do not agree with that. I'll turn this around, and it's kind of interesting uh, to think, though, that you know, today when we hear someone teaching something that is wrong, uh, we can't just leave it alone and and say, uh, well, it'll come to nothing, it, because sometimes we're warned in Scripture about some very dangerous teachings. And I know that we are already out of time, and I'm bringing up a whole other topic. But but it's interesting that Gamaliel does say this, and we say, well, that that was a that was good advice. But today we can't we can't do that. Uh, we can't just say, "Well, if if what they're teaching is not right, uh, we'll just leave it alone and, and let it fail because uh, it could cause folks to be lost." Uh, that's an important
2: commandment of Christians. Ephesians five and verse eleven, for example, tells us that we're not we're to expose the works of darkness. So you're exactly right, Paul. Uh, one more question, and then we'll jump back to our chat room and wrap it all up. John, what's the outcome of all of this? What how does this trial go?
0: Well, they end up releasing the apostles, but the apostles are not persuaded to stop what they're doing. Um, they departed from the presence of the council. They were rejoicing, and this is what's interesting. And, and this is why First and Second Peter are such a power, two powerful letters. They uh, counted it worthy that they were able to suffer shame for the name of Christ. And it's not that they were ashamed of preaching, but the sheer fact they took the beating. And these things, uh, the way they were treated by men was all in the name of Christ. And so they continued teaching daily in the temple, in every house. They did not cease the teaching and preaching.
2: Uh, You know, John, you said something there uh, that I think is worth noting uh, about being beaten. Uh, Had they been beaten last time they were tried
0: before these people? No, they were just warned sternly.
2: What is the next time one of them is brought up for trial going to happen?
0: I think that's when James Steven. dies, isn't it?
2: Well, uh, James, I was thinking of Stephen even, but uh, uh,
0: Stephen. Okay, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. So, so I think there's kind of an interesting point of an escalation of violence. That, in other words, they're first arrested, then they're arrested and beaten, and then you. you actually also brought up James. They're going to be put to death after this. So, so we see a steady increase in violence against them uh, as they're not being able to be silenced. So that's that's a good that's point important. too. Uh, Let's go ahead and jump over to our chat question that we had, if we can. And uh, I see we've got uh, some good comments there and uh, uh, two good comments to bring up. So let's uh, bring that up, if we can. Our chat question was, what are some applications for us today? In regards to Peter's declaration, we ought to obey God rather than men, verse 29. So first we go to Stephen James there. Irrespective of what societies may insist or attempt to impose on us, our allegiance is to God and His Word, excellent. That boy, that that says it perfectly. Uh, and and Gregor Hinckley agrees. Uh, Gregor Hinckley says, uh, yes, what he said. Our focus is on what God wants. The rest will come on its own time. Um, we need to understand that our duty is first and foremost as citizens of the kingdom. That's where our first allegiance is. If we're ever ordered by the laws of men to do something that God has not uh, that God has told us is sinful, uh, our allegiance is first to God. So we can't be silenced. We can't be told not to do the things God has told us to do. We must obey God rather than men. Although in all other things, the Word of God is also tells us it's important that we must obey, uh, honor the king, and do what is right in the sight of all men, Romans chapter 13 tells us. Well, that's all the time we have. Actually, that's more than the time we had. And I appreciate everybody who uh, stuck with us as we went a little further on in our in our conversation time here. As we kind of wrap up, uh, to remind ourselves of the things that we saw here, Uh, you can lie, but you can't fool God. That's Ananias and Sapphira's message. And the apostles' suffering is going to become something more and more pronounced as they are persecuted for the preaching of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians, Paul will say that that is a testimony to the veracity, both of the gospel and of the truth of the men who would speak it. And so these are important things for us to go. We're going to turn things over to John now to wrap us all up.
0: Brian, I appreciate your work on today's outline and leading our discussion. Appreciate it very much. And I'd like to thank everyone else who has joined us today. It's always good when we come together in this fashion to study the Word of God. Since we're over time, I will go ahead and skip asking if there are other, any other final comments. But Brian, it's okay. Sometimes we start a little bit late. We go a little bit long, but we get the job done and we benefit from it. And hopefully you benefit from it as well. Um, If everything goes according to plan, Paul, do you have Acts chapter 6 for next? Are you down for Acts chapter 6?
1: I think I volunteered as we began our study today, uh, just before we went live. So uh, I'll be happy to do
0: chapter 6. All right. Sounds good. Well, if everything, like I said, if everything goes according to plan, we will continue with our study next Wednesday. We'll be in Acts chapter 6. And listen, please take a moment subscribe to the, our YouTube channel if you haven't done that already. And as we pointed out a while ago, it is uh, youtube.com slash truthfactorlive. Subscribe, click the bell notification icon there, or follow us on Facebook that, Facebook. that way you'll also receive notifications when we begin our study. But let's look at this again next week at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time.
1: That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific time.
0: 10 a.m. Mountain time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.